With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to the second hour of Weekends with Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio. I hope you enjoyed the other side of Joseph Arthur in the last hour. It's great to be able to catch up with Joseph and to get inside the mind of a creative spirit. Quite incredible when you look at the artwork and then you hear the music and then you realise a political commentator and radio show host and you just think, wow. That's got to be the life uh, that, uh, well, certainly I I feel a little bit jealous in that approach, and I I guess many other people would too. But you're here for information and you're here for entertainment in the process, and, of course, that's what we're trying to do. Now, I've been very lucky to be be given the uh, the privilege of presenting this weekend's show, and as you may have noticed, it's a a very different approach from the work that I've done previously here on TNT Radio, and given the creative licence, so to speak, to be able to explore and bring you new people, new ideas, new books, books, new films, uh, new music is, is one of the great delights. And it's a part of a process and it's, a, it's it's research in its own right and being able to find people who are putting their work out there in a, in a digital age where it's not no longer just the radio stations and the TV stations and, and, and 25 people a year get the privilege of being heard. Now, anyone can be heard. And so there's this great wash of information and talent, especially people producing. I mean, there are people now who are making expensive films using their own money and just releasing them for free on YouTube. So economically, it's not necessarily a sustainable model. So what people have to do, therefore, is they have to have other vocations. So when you speak to people, they might have multiple careers going. They might be a professional, perhaps like me, I have a counselling practice, and that's just something that's little, and you build it and you serve the people as they come. But it fits into life. But what it does is it opens up um, incredible perspective, and of course, new fields of information and knowledge. And then you realise that in the contribution of helping others, uh, that this comes back both ways. And I find that a, a wonderful part of what's going on. Then, of course, you uh, get to uh, to meet people in the day-to-day realities of life. And so on tomorrow's show, we'll have Mark Morrie here from the uh, Daily Telegraph here in Sydney, the crime reporter, who unbelievably started out as a cadet journalist in the heyday of the Blue Murder series, as many people have seen, about Roger Rogerson and the criminal Nettie Smith, both men are now deceased, Roger Rogerson passing away a couple of years, a couple of weeks ago, I should say. Uh, and, and then, of course, the stories that come out. Now, Mark, uh, in, in, in you'll find out tomorrow, used to drink with Rogerson from around about 2005 and with a bunch of other policemen. And uh, uh, interesting how he will report on that situation. And I'm fascinated to compare that to today's crime wars, uh, gangland wars that are coming out, and even the tobacco wars that are happening here in Australia. Very, very odd that we're seeing uh, tobacconists just being burnt down all around the place. So it's given rise now to the idea of illegal tobacco perhaps being traded. And we've now learned the facts this week that some 20% of the trade now is for illegal tobacco in a country that's very, very strict and very, very rigid. So there's a, an underbelly, as it were here, uh, with people trying to gain economic advantage by uh, cutting the tax man out as it is. And of course, that is a crime. And of course, Mark will be here tomorrow. Well, my guest this hour will be on shortly. His name is Rick Brown. And I'm just going to um, uh, just tell you a little bit about this. So um, I was I was reading a 
one book, and of course it leads to another book. And I noticed that Rick had written a book that was part, was an essay that formed part of a book with uh, Robbie Catter, and the story was called From Russo to the World Economic Forum, Woke Capitalism and the Power of Ideas. Well, that was music to my ears that somebody who, uh, when I will read you his um, bio shortly, I thought, well, this man must know what's going on. I reached out to Rick and we had a great conversation. And when I was chatting to Rick, I, I must have written about five pages of notes in the conversation uh, about the different ideas that he was talking about and some, some ideas I was familiar with and some I wasn't. And it was the history that fascinated me in the fact that Rick had gone back hundreds of years to determine political ideology and follow it through. And there's a man who was a lawyer uh, and uh, was involved on both sides of the political divide, left and right, uh, and making his contribution. And I thought that this beautiful power of ideas, this wonder of knowledge is incredibly, incredibly exciting. Now, I've just been given word that Rick's going to join us on the phone. We might have a technical difficulty there. So what I'm going to do now is I'm actually going to read the bio. I'll introduce you to Rick and we'll get started with our conversation uh, that we're going to have today. So in the front line of Australia's top political strategist, Rick Brown has a reputation across the political divide for being a first-rate analyst, thinker, and communicator. He's a proven tactician and organiser, and over three decades has been behind-the-scenes architect of many highly successful and effective campaigns and strategies. A lawyer by training, Rick's uh, early career was spent in PNG's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. He also worked in the Australian trade union movement for a decade as an official and advocate. In 1999, Rick became the Victorian director of the No Republic campaign. He personally devised the vote no to the politician's republic slogan and played a lead role in the development of the national strategy, which underpinned the defeat of the referendum and an unexpected majority no vote in Victoria. And between 2004 and 2007, Rick worked as an advisor to Senator Nick Minchin and as a senior advisor to Kevin Andrews. He played a pivotal role in devising and implementing the coalition's timber campaign and campaign against the Greens in 2004 federal election, which culminated in the celebrated Launceston rally. And as I mentioned, he's the author of From Russo to the World Economic Forum, Woke Capitalism and the Power of Ideas, available now through Connor Court Publishing. Rick Brown, welcome to Weekends. Yes, yes, Jason. I'm sorry it's on a phone and, and it's not through a camera, but that's a demonstration of my technological incompetence. Well, you know what, as I say, Rick, nobody's perfect, but thank you for your, uh, th thanks for your time today. And I I've had um, a great intellectual stimulation by uh, not only our, our, our conversation pre-interview, if you will, but uh, th also the work that you've, you've put together. I, I find it fascinating that, um, that you've been able to work both sides of, of, of this fence and become a strategist, uh, but who better therefore to be able to offer strategy because you know how politics works on uh, said both sides. How does that come about? Was it a natural progression or was it something that you were determined to do? No, neither. Um, the, um, when you look at uh, my biography on the face of it, um, it doesn't make sense. I spent 10 years with unions, um, 10 years with uh, heading up a think tank, uh, basically established by very, very well-known people who were conservative. The... Um, then there was the No Republic campaign, as you said. Then, uh, then I spent four years or three years as an advisor to an independent in the Victorian Parliament. Uh, then it was the coalition in uh, in Canberra, and then it was setting up the business which we currently run. Um, but the common theme through all of that is is values. 
uh, most of my life I've worked for causes. And those causes have a common set of values. So in the case of the unions, for example, they were were anti-communist unions. And so I spent 10 years at the coalface negating communists. Uh, The the 10 years with the think tank, again, um, what had all of those people had in common was uh, they were all anti-communist. The... um, and then that, that then, then took us to the, the 1990s, which was the downfall of communism and um, the rise of um, well, the dominance of economic liberalism, uh, the social and uh, economic consequences of which were always totally foreseeable, uh, always. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the economic liberals refused to accept it. Uh, and then, as you say, uh, it was it came working for the coalition, and fundamentally, um, what that was was about in modern parlance was um, opposing the rise of the woke. Uh, I mean, they, they were they were already obvious back in two thousand and four. Uh, in two thousand and four, in Western Australia, there was a group called Liberals for Forests. Uh, their successes are the teals. Mm. Uh, my, my approach to dealing with liberals for forests was completely different from the liberal approach to dealing with teals. We just took them on head on. Uh, there was no attempt. There was no attempt to compromise at all. The um, and the 2004 campaign was was part of that. Uh, then there was uh, the business, and um, one of the things I was asked to do there in about oh, 2010 was to write a report opposing Australia's entering into a free trade agreement with China. And uh, all the issues people talk about now were well known then. Uh, The persecution of of the Uyghurs or the Muslims, uh, the use of both Uyghurs and Falun Gong in prison camps, uh, uh, and not only to torture them, but to manufacture manufacturing goods, Uh, the economic advantage that China got over the West through currency manipulation, uh, virtually non-existent environment laws, non-existent labour laws, uh, all, all well known, all identified. Uh, but economic liberals turned a blind eye to it at the time because they were making money. Mm. And so we end up where we end up. Yeah. Uh, but fundamentally, that's the common thread in all of it. Uh, it it's, I mean, it's, it's quite detailed, isn't it, when you go through the uh, the actual experience there that then becomes the spin-off for the work that you, you, that you do. Um, there's many things that I want to touch on uh, today, and I want to go back into some of the history where we're going to talk about Rousseau and Gramsci, yes. uh, et, et cetera. But I also want to bring up for the benefit of, of our viewers and listeners today uh, something that you talk about in stakeholder capitalism. I'd like, if you can, to explain the difference between stakeholder capitalism and shareholder capitalism. It, it's something that comes up in in, in, in blog posts and, and posts on social yeah. media, and I don't think people fully understand what, what all that means. Um, the, um, the, the, authority, the authority on this is a fellow by the name of Klaus Schwab. Yeah. Uh, Klaus Schwab, um, I think, is an extraordinary man. Uh, in the 1970s, he set up a, a, a one-man business now known as the World Economic Forum. It continues as a one-man business, uh, despite despite all the glitter that goes on around it. And uh, 
Klaus Schwab uh, basically has always declared what, what he was doing. If you go to the World Economic Forum website, uh, he, he lays it out and you have to look at basically at what he wrote in the 70s and what he wrote now. But essentially, um, the, this concept called stakeholder capitalism actually has been around since the 1930s. But Klaus Schwab became a devotee of it in the 1970s. Now, at that time, as you know, in the West, uh, what I would call Milton Friedman ruled the waves. Uh, but nevertheless, Klaus Schwab set up the World Economic Forum and he has just sat back and bided his time. And what he does is he presents stakeholder capitalism as a compromise between what he calls state capitalism on the one hand, or what people would describe as communism or Marxism or whatever you want to call it, and um, what he describes as free market on the other, which is Milton Friedman. Now, if you come to Friedman, uh, the essence of Milton Friedman was that uh, business basically had to focus on three different groups of people. Uh, shareholders, customers, and employees. And, and they, they were the only three to whom management had an obligation. Stakeholder capitalism in introduces a fourth. And the fourth one is what they call stakeholders, and stakeholders, stakeholders, if you like, are representatives of society. So if you look at who's turning up to Davos, while um, all the media's around all, all the self-appointed business gurus, there's also a whole heap of non-government organizations and all the rest of it turning up. These non-government organization representatives are Klaus Schwab's version of the representative society. Klaus Schwab set up the World Economic Forum and is using stakeholder capitalism to enable management to be trustees of the world. They're his words, they're not mine. Mm. And, so, and so through what, what we call woke, what you see is the manifestation of management being trustees of the world. Now, the, uh, what's, um, what, what's, what's quite Im important uh, in that is, is somebody other than Schwab, and it's quite unrelated on the face of it to, um, to this, and it's a fellow called Christopher Lash. Uh, Christopher Lash uh, was, and I say was because he's now dead, uh, was an American professor of history. And in the 1990s, he was one of the first people uh, to start opposing um, economic rationalism because of its social and its financial consequences. And the in the course of that, and if I've, I've got the essay in front of me, um, Christopher Lash uh, wrote... Uh, in his last his last book was a series of essays, and the uh, one of the essays was called "The Revolt of the Elites," and that was the title that he that he gave to the book. And in that, the uh, he he simply pointed out that 
the elites have always basically treated the masses as peasants. Yeah. The, um, I'm sorry, I'm just, his, his actual quote, if, if I get my hands on it, the, um, what I'll get you to do, Rick, is hold that thought. We'll go to a break, and when we'll come back, we'll continue with this uh, with, with oh, the no, conversation. No, 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 that's very timely of you, James. Because I'll, I'll, I'll find I'll find this in the break. Thanks. Oh. No, no problem. So at TNT Radio, we never go home. We are committed to bringing you our take on the biggest topics of our time. We broadcast live 24-7 online globally, no matter what. We've got you covered on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. TNT's Timothy Shea. The race is essentially now Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley. Ron disappoints us will be pulling his hat from the ring next. And the issue, as always, is why... Is the Nikki taking so much of the left's money? Well, maybe this will give you a little insight. She credits Hillary Clinton with inspiring her to enter politics, having attended a women's leadership summit at which Hillary spoke. And Nikki said, and I quote, I then had to decide whether I was a Republican or Democrat. See, Nikki has no core beliefs other than doing whatever her globalist masters, paymasters, want her to say. The Reckoning with Timothy Shea on today's News Talk TNT. Affordable housing, we can build that. Sustainable housing, we can build that. At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost, and functionality. Our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units. If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future. Our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are opportunity zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702 or read more at MITModular.com. MIT Modular. We can build that. The conversation continues. I don't believe it, and I think that's a terrible position that I am in, that I don't trust my government. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to Weekends with Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio. My guest this hour is the Director of CPI Strategies, Rick Brown. Rick, uh, how did you go? Did you find the quote there in the uh, in the essay that you'd, uh, you had? Well, the answer is I haven't, but I'll, I'll keep going as, as I do, but... The, um, but it, essentially, what, what what he said was that the that the cultural revolution, the cultural revolution since the nineteen sixties, is best understood as essentially the elites uh, setting up a system in which they not only don't debate or discuss anything with the masses, whom he in the nineteen nineties said that they think are xenophobic, racist, and all the rest of it. Mm. Now, bear in mind, he wrote this in the early 1990s. He said what they were about was not putting in place 
systems where they could debate or negotiate, but put in place systems where they could bypass the peasants altogether. Yeah. Uh, he called it parallel institutions. Right, yes. So, so the, and, and you see it today. You know, banks basically shutting down accounts of people with whom they don't agree. Mm. Uh, Which banks, we obviously get. Banks dictating what companies can and cannot invest in. This is simply bypassing all structures. Yes. I mean, Lash was, Lash was demonstrably ahead of his time. Uh, the, uh, but so, so what you've got is, uh, and the reason for raising that, it, I'm sorry to, to digress, but um, as, I, as I was writing the essay, um, uh, and, and you'll come back to, I'm sort of going ahead if you'll come back to stuff you want to talk about. But mm. as I was writing the essay, um, I was talking about a, an Italian communist called Antonio Gramsci. And Gramsci uh, basically set out a strategy in the 30s, uh, essentially uh, to get cultural control. And he targeted the elites. And so the question that that, that raised in my mind was... Uh, whether, in fact, what we see now with the elite's contempt for democracy is a modern phenomenon, or whether or not uh, it's always been there. Mm. And one of the reasons I've always had that thought in the back of my mind uh, is this quote of Christopher Lash. But when I went to look at this question, I, I didn't go to Europe because you know, with all of the nobles and all, all, the, rest, all the rest of that stuff, um, it'd be hard not to make a case that the elites have always run Europe. So instead, I went and looked at America because mm. America is supposed to be the land of the free. Mm. Uh, and so what I did was I went back and looked at the statements of the people who wrote the Constitution. Yes. So I went back to the likes of James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, and all of that. Now, the person who allegedly, well, no, the person who was very influential in writing the Constitution, even if, if, he, did, if he didn't write the whole of it, was a fellow called James Madison. And in the discussions, what he said was, in England at this day, if elections were open to all classes of people, the property of the landed proprietors would be insecure. Governments ought to be so constituted as to protect the minority of the opulent against the majority. Mm. This, this was in the 1700s. Yes. So the US Constitution was written to prevent democracy. Wow. Contrary to, yeah. po contrary to popular myth. Yes. And then, then he went on... And this, this is where the, um, if you like, the elitism or the arrogance comes in. Um, and he said, uh, government should be delegated to a small number of people whose wisdom may, may best discern the true interests of their country. It may well happen that the public voice pronounced by the representatives of the people will be more consonant to the public good than if pronounced by the people themselves. Incredible, isn't it? This is hundreds of years ago, and yet we seem to be living it right now in real time uh, more than ever uh, down this sort of compliance highway, if you will. And the reason, the reason for dragging this into your original question uh, is that 
if you if you start with my view that the elites, I mean, these days in America they talk about deep state and all that sort of stuff. Well, they're just they're talking about the elites. Hmm. Uh, you know, deep state's just a term to describe the elites. Um, so if you start from the proposition of the elites have always always run the place, then the next question is, um, why hasn't it been obvious before now? Yeah, and the um, and there are two answers to that. Um, the and one was set out by a fellow called Fairley. Uh, he used to write for the Spectator in the nineteen fifties, and he was the person who coined the, the term the establishment. Yeah. And uh, he wrote he wrote in the say in the nineteen fifties, in which he then coined this term. The um, sorry, can I interrupt you? Can I can I digress? Sure. I, I, I found my Christopher Lash quote. Excellent. Uh, the culture wars that have convulsed America since the 60s are best understood as a form of class warfare and which an enlightened elite, as it thinks of itself, thinks, seeks not so much to impose its values on the majority, a majority perceived as incorrigibly racist, sexist, provincial and xenophobic, much less persuade the majority by means of rational public debate, as to create, but as to create parallel or alternative institutions, in which it will no longer be necessary to confront the enlightened, the unenlightened at all. Now, so this yes. has been trained since this has been trained according to Lay since the nineteen sixties. Um, and then, you know, when when you look at um, Fairley's Roger Fairley, I think he's Henry Fairley. Henry Fairley, uh, yes. Yeah, uh, when, when you look at Henry, uh, Henry Fairley's uh, statement, The Spectator, the point he makes, and this is the point this Italian communist grasped, um, is that the elites exercise influence not through legal structures, mm. but through a social network. Yes. And he pointed out this social network is widespread, and, and, and in his description in the 1950s, I mean, he had the, you know, the head of the library and all sorts of people. I've actually got the quote here, Rick, if you don't mind. I'll read it. It's yeah, about a couple yeah, of paragraphs. I'll take it straight out. It says, as you wrote in, in it, you said, as for Europe, yes. spectator columnist Henry Fairley's description of the establishment in 1955, no doubt could be applied well beyond the boundaries of England. By the establishment, I do not mean only the centres of official power, though they are certainly part of it, but rather the whole matrix of official and social relations within which power is exercised. The exercise of power in Britain, more specifically in England, cannot be understood unless it is recognised that it is exercised socially. The establishment can be seen at the work in the activities of not only the Prime Minister, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Earl Marshal, but of such lesser mortals as the Chairman of the Arts Council, the Director General of the BBC, and even the editor of the Times literally, lit, uh, Literary Supplement. How's that? But that, but when you, so when you read this stuff, um, everything, everything makes sense. This is this was my light bulb moment, Rick, because there's so many questions that we have. So when I'm reading uh, or your work, it's sort of like ding, 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 ding. And it wasn't until we had that conversation and you explained from Gramsci from all that time ago. Uh, and, and this was the lead into this whole idea of, you know, um, uh, where we head to um, uh, through uh, Rousseau um, uh, all the way to, uh, to Schwab. But if you establish Schwab for a minute... The, the, the problem for the elites with stakeholder capitalism is not that they're exercising power that they never had. 
The problem is, at least I think, sorry, this is an opinion, not a fact. The, the, the problem is that, that they are so arrogant that they simply think, well, no, they think not only can they do anything they like, they think they've got an obligation to do anything they like. Yes. But the, um, what's happened with stakeholder capitalism is if you like, to go back to Fairley, they've had to come out from behind the curtain. Mm. You know, the moment, the moment you start shutting down people's bank accounts, yeah. you're coming out into the open. Yes. And that's what's happened. So, Fundamentally, they've come out from behind the curtains. So is this the fatal? To... Sorry, is this the fatal flaw? Therefore, in the establishment, in the eyes of the general public, that their power is now uh, conceivably ah. able to be challenged at long last. Um, I think. Well, first of all, I don't think there are single answers to any of this. Um, and I think I think you get into the area of opinion. But um, but my my answer to you is this. Uh, uh, as I say, I deal would deal with politics is. Um, I've said this for years. Uh, I've got great faith with the punter. I've got great faith in the peasants. Yeah. The um, I think in elections the punter gets it right. The uh, but if, then you say to me, well, if you think the punter gets it right and the uh, the, the peasants are right, you know, how come you know, the punters have gone gone along with the system which demonstrably has done them over mercilessly? Um, and I think the answer to that is this. Uh, I think the punter has known that they've been done over mercilessly. Yes. They've known all the way through. Yes. But the punter has felt helpless. Mm. Yeah, has felt that there's, that, you know, they haven't got any power. There's nothing they can do about it. So you get on with life and you manage the things you can. Mm. So what you do is that you can, to some degree, control that your kids get as good an education as possible. So you focus on that. Uh, you can focus on the idea that you can get enough money together to go on a camping holiday every year. So you focus on that. Yes. And you simply don't focus on things you can't control. Mm. Um, but the I think what's happened, um, and I need to say this first, um, uh, I don't have um, an emotional or an ideological or an intellectual interest in the fortunes of Donald Trump. Mm. The, um, but I think, uh, you know, it is said that history is best, is best written, you know, at least 50 years after the event. And that's because... Uh, you need about two generations to get people who are totally dispassionate. Yes. Um, but I think, in, I think when history is written in the future, um, Donald Trump uh, will be recorded as one of the most significant political figures, um, not just in US history, but in global history. Um, and the, the reason is this, I, I think, in, in addition to, to whatever else he's done, and I'm talking about what he's done. I'm not, I'm not talking about his personality. I mean, most of the most of the opposition to Donald Trump is based around uh, the fact that he's, an, he's a narcissist, mm. and and people therefore can't understand you know, how could anybody possibly vote for a narcissist. 
which the answer is the people voting for him know he's a narcissist, but they're voting for him anyway because they're voting for what he what he did. You know, uh, he, he's the bloke who's turned the worldview on China on its head. Mm. And, and, and Trump has done that. Um, he has made uh, appointments to the Supreme Court which have, have certainly... Um, I won't say changed the course of history, but it, but it's but it's certainly but it's certainly sort of got it refocused. Uh, the his claims about the um, the dangers threat uh, the dangers presented by a porous Mexican border um, have been validated. Uh, but the um, I think I think what he's done and. What isn't reported is I think he has given the masses confidence. Mm. Uh, I, I think I think since Trump, the masses have thought I can strike a blow. Yes. Uh, I mean, all all this whole opposition to everything has, has all come since Donald Trump emerged back in two thousand six. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the um, and. Uh, and some of the stuff people are taking on, he's, he's never spoken about. I mean, where, where the uh, the economics liberals have a problem, in my view, um, and uh, Mr. Trump personifies it, um, uh, they think that they can get the support of the masses by focusing on culture and ignoring talking about economics, mm. because they know economic liberals has not has not helped has not, has not advanced. Well, the the well, the prosperity of the masses. So, so they think that just simply by not talking about it, people will forget about it. Um, but when you look at uh, Mr. Trump in two hundred one six, he didn't he didn't win on on work issues. He won on economics. Yes. You know, he he won, he won Michigan. He won Ohio. Um, the and 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 so. For, China was actually an economic issue. Mm. Yeah, it was about yeah, jobs and manufacturing, were, wasn't it? Yeah, people, people lost their jobs. Yes. And one of the side issues to be put about manufacturing that people are only just starting to talk about, and it's something of which I'm conscious because I worked for two unions in the 70s and 80s, and the second one was a union called the Federated Ironworkers Association. Uh, it's now been caught up with the Australian Workers' Union. But the Federated Ironworkers Association was a union heavily involved in manufacturing. Steel, aluminium, predominantly. So uh, I'm, I'm very conscious about the difference between a manufacturing job and a job in the service sector. Yes. And jobs in manufacturing are more secure and better paid. Mm. The, and you can go to, well, that is so, but, but they are just simply the facts. Yeah, and one of the reasons we are there's a lot of reasons why we're seeing the widening wealth gap, but um, but one of them is to the extent that jobs have replaced manufacturing jobs, they have been in the service sector, and and when people think service sector, they think doctors, lawyers, uh, you know, IT, whatever. Whereas what they should what they should be thinking about is Woolies, Kentucky yeah. Fried, Uber. Yep. Uh, couriers yep. and all the rest of it. Yep. And, and, and in Australia these days, of course, the NDIS seems to be the biggest job provider in the world, funded entirely by the taxpayer. 
Well, well, well oh, sorry, I, I won't. I won't talk about it again. You, you could talk all day about the stuff. Um, and yeah. I, I, if we've got time, I'll digress into NDIS. But um, but the uh, but the fundamental issue is that these jobs are, are insecure mm. and they're less well paid. Mm. And so what that leads you through to the point is even if housing prices were not where they work, were, none of these industries will, uh, at, at the lower level, I'm not talking at the management level, at the lower level, um, will generate a job that enables somebody to go and get a mortgage. Mm. This is quite straightforward. Yep. Um, so the, uh, so what, Mr. Trump has, did all of that was he he actually gave people hope. Yes. The, um, and, he, and, and the more that the elites criticised him, the more the masses concluded they were right in backing him in. The enemy mm. of my enemy is my friend. Yes. Absolutely. It, it is. It is so simple. When 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 you follow it like that, Rick, it, it makes total sense. And of course, it's the um, the galvanising, as it were, of the people. And of course, we're seeing it right now in, in real time. I'm just mindful that we're going to have to take another break. Uh, when we come back, sure. I, I want to discuss um, a little bit more about your um, referencing to third party elections as it pertains to um, the electoral college. I think that's really important for people to understand oh, yes, that process. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And, and the other thing, if, if time permitting, is uh, the comparisons that you made, given that you're involved in the Republic um, referendum yes. versus the voice referendum, I think is really important, again, for people to understand, because yes. this explains what we've just talked about in real terms in, in Australia, uh, demonstrably, as you said. We'll take that break now, and we'll be back with more here on Weekends with Jason Olborn on TNT Radio. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. Last week, when Karine Jean-Pierre was asked about the position of Joe Biden when it comes to late-term abortions, she had the phony rhetoric ready to go. What I will say is majority of Americans, majority of Americans wants to see their rights protected, wants to see women have their rights protected, wants to be able to, wants, want women to be able to make those deeply, deeply personal decisions on their bodies, on their own, not politicians. That's what majority of Americans want to see. And so the president's going to stand with majority of Americans on this issue. Do those unborn babies have any rights then? I'm not going to get into that specific. I'm not going to get into that question. Rights for unborn babies? What are you, mad? <laughs> but let's take a look at how Americans really feel about the issue of abortion. This is from Gallup, May of last year. Only 34% of Americans believe abortion should be legal under all circumstances. 34%. A majority, 64%, say limited circumstances or not at all. And in the same poll, only 22% of Americans believe third trimester abortion should be legal at all. It just shows that Karine Jean-Pierre and her leftist buddies are a bunch of liars. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on TNT. We are for pets. We do anything for them because they do everything for us. We are for people, for those who love pets unconditionally. We are for good, from adoptions and veterinary care to disaster relief and fighting pet hunger. We stand together to create a better world for pets and families in need. 
We are PetSmart Charities. For pets, for people, for good. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back. My guest this hour is the director of CPI Strategic, Rick Brown. And before the break, we were talking about the ability of Donald Trump to galvanise support of the people to realise that they more or less had been hoodwinked by an elite at play and his policies of being able to support the average punter's ability to have a good paying job and therefore get a mortgage, which therefore gives people the power and the strength to go and own property, is everything that's not what we're seeing from the stakeholder capitalism, World Economic Forum, communism, you'll own nothing and be happy. So it seems that the people don't want what Klaus Schwab and the elites want, but they do want what Donald Trump wants. Where I wanted to go in this segment, uh, therefore, Rick, was the idea that, 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 for example, people thought that if Donald Trump was a true independent, for example, that he might run third party or, or even if he got elected, pull out of the Republicans and become a third party. But this is not how it works based on the electoral college. Can you explain that a little bit more so people can understand that it's designed to protect the power? Yes. Uh, the, um, it, it's an example, Jason, for us talking about, about the founding fathers designing a system to prevent, to prevent the masses um, from having a say where it really matters. Mm. The... Um, the it's essentially the best. In the first, the, the college system essentially is a first past the post system. This yes. is a simple way to understand it. So, uh, so what you have is that you have um, when, so when in America people don't actually vote for the president. They actually vote for members of a committee which elects the president. Yes, that's and that's that committee right. is called the college. Yep. And this col this this com this college or this committee has representatives from every state, which is based on the populations of those states. So, if you live in Maine, you have uh, you have fewer representatives than if you live in California. Mm. In each state, the voting is first past the post. So. Let's say that for the sake of argument, um, Maine has got 19 delegates to this committee. Mm. And let's say in Maine, the vote is um, 10 Democrat, 8 Republican. The Democrats get 18 representatives. Yes. The, um, it's in straight winner take all. So, if, mm. so or we'll put it in real terms. So Democrats get 52%. Republicans get 48%, Democrats sweep the pool. Now, you start thinking about what are the chances of an independent getting more than 50% of the vote in a state? It's very slim, very quick. Yep. Then start thinking about, even if they can do it in one state, whether they can do it in the big states, and even if mm. they can do it in a big state, then whether or not they can do it to, to accumulate a couple of hundred votes. Mm. Uh, I think for memory, and I'm, I'm not an expert on US politics, um, I think for memory that the only person who ran as an independent and who actually won a state 
was a fellow called George Wallace back in the 60s. Yep, right. And I think for memory, he actually won about, he actually accumulated about 40 votes. Well, it just didn't take him very far because the total number of votes is well over 200 or 300 or whatever it is. 276 or something like that. Whatever. Ross Perot, for example. You know, Ross Perot, I think, got in primary vote terms close. uh, Ross Perot ran in the 90s. Uh, He, I think, got close to 20% of the primary vote. He did not get one college vote. That's right, yeah. Which kind of defeats Uh, the purpose, doesn't it? Because... At the very least, if you if you prevent either party from winning a majority, then then you've got a problem. But that still doesn't resolve it, does it? Because it goes to the to the Congress. Yes. Yeah, well, 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 and and then and the congressional system is interesting because if it goes to the Congress, um, the way it works is that in what we call the House of Representatives, and they call the Congress. I think the way it works is each state gets one vote. Mm. So. So then, so basically, so whichever party's got the numbers in a particular state, they get the vote for that state. Yeah. And then when you go to the Senate, um, you've got the system where it's it's basically the personal choice of the senators. So they don't need to take the slightest notice of what's going on in the House. So none of this, none of this uh, preserves the will of the people here. It's like every uh, check and balance in the system favours the elites to uh, to install who they choose. It's, it's, it's designed that way. Yes. You'll get denials all around, but it's, it's designed that way. Mm. I mean, why is it, Cisco said, why is it that, that in America you have a system in which to, to get elected you literally have to spend you know, hundred million dollars or something or other. Yeah, yeah. This is per person. Yes. I mean, clearly, that's a vehicle uh, which which enables um, people with money or the elites to control the system. Yes. And, it, and it's and, it's and, staring and, us in the face. Sorry, Rick. It, it stares us in the yeah. face, and yet people don't want to put the two and two together to draw the obvious conclusion. This goes back to the distractions, that, I guess, that people have to do to, to to get on with their life. So, where does it head from here? From the point of view, is this why you you you, you present the argument that Trump has been able to um to find the support that he has in the system as as some sort of circuit breaker? Is that the process, or is he just a, 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 a aberration of history? Well, time will tell. Mm. Uh, the interest, I, I don't think we can answer that question today. Time will tell. Mm. Um, I think that um, I think that if he were re-elected, that would probably change history. Mm. Um, and I'm not saying whether that's good or bad, mm. but I think if he were elected, it would probably change history. Yeah. Uh, some people could say he has already changed history, but I'm not sure that he's changed history permanently. Mm. Uh, you see, I, I think you see, you asked yourself the question. Why is it, uh, I understand why people oppose Trump and all that, but the thing, the thing and, uh, that I didn't understand until I wrote this essay was why the venom? Mm. You know, why get the links they're going to? Mm. You know, why try to get him off a ballot paper? Mm. You know, just why the venom? Um, to which my answer now is, that he represents the first serious challenge to the American elites probably in their history. Yes. 
And that then brings in um, another fellow, a fellow called Samuel Huntington. Uh, Samuel Huntington wrote an, an, an essay called Davos Man uh, mm. back in about 2004. Uh, and Samuel Huntington, again, he was an, another bloke ahead of his time. And uh, in the essay, uh, the point that, that Huntington made was that up until then, the elites had always been what I would call nationalists. But by then, they had become internationalists. Now, these mm. days, the term that's used is globalist. Yes. But Huntington actually identified this back in 2004. So Donald Trump's being a threat to the American elites, then it becomes a threat to all elites. Mm. Because they're globalist. Mm. Um, so, so this, and, and, and worse, even worse, from the point of view of the elites, he's a traitor. Of course. He's a billionaire. Yes. He's not putting his class loyalties first. Now, I'm not saying he's putting the interests of the masses first, or he's, it's, it's not all about him or whatever people want to say. Um, mm. But he clearly is not putting his class interests first for whatever reason. Mm. That's, you know, that's a serious problem. But this is where um, the rise of Donald Trump links to what you, you want to talk about next when we come back to Australia. Well, this is it. And, and so what I wanted to do is just, just quickly for, for our audience, you, you, you were involved in the No campaign for the Republic, but what yeah. no one would be aware of is that um, that you made comparisons between the vote and, and where the vote was in both the Republic and then some 20, what, three, 20 something years later in the voice referendum. We've got about uh, five minutes left of, of the hour there, Rick. That's fine. Um, as a result of the Republic, um, this, this, this is my proposition. But since 2000, um, it, has not, it has not been possible to analyse election results in, the, in, in Australia looking at, from, looking at it from the point of view of party loyalty or meaningless ideological cliches like left and right. Mm. But the way to understand the New Republic results was postcodes, where people lived. The four highest yes votes in the No Republic in Victoria were the electorates of Higgins and Kuyong, two safe liberal suburbs, or electorates, and Melbourne and Melbourne Ports, then two safe Labor electorates. The electorate of Melbourne is now green, and in 2022, I think Labor won Higgins, and the Teals won um, Kuyong. The, if you went to the western suburbs of Melbourne, which is Labor, the yes vote mirrored the no vote in the outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne, which is Liberal, to the percent. If you went to Queensland, which in those days had about 28 federal electorates, the electorate of Ryan, safe Liberal, and the electorate of Brisbane, then safe Labor, uh, voted yes. The rest of the state voted no. The no vote in Rockhampton, safe Labor, was the same as the no vote in Mackay, uh, safe country party or national. You could go right around the country like this. Mm. Now, what happened, though, was the political class ignored those results completely because they live in the inner suburbs and they, and they are part of this cultural elite. Mm. 
And they have put their cultural class loyalty ahead of doing their job, which is to win elections. They know the outer suburbs values are founded in conservatism, but they refuse to adopt policies that are genuinely conservative. Yes. So now you come forward 20 years, and you come first to the 2022 federal election. And it was that federal election that led to the Institute of Public Affairs getting me to write an essay about this. Because what they said, yet when you looked at where the Teals and the Greens were making ground, they were all those seats I talked about in the No Republic referendum, all the inner suburbs. Mm. Now you come to The Voice. If you do an overlay of the electorates in The Voice that voted yes, and the electorates that voted yes in the, in the Republic referendum, they are virtually identical. <laughs> so percentages may have moved, mm. but the geography hasn't changed. Yes. Most of the electorates in Victoria, and I haven't looked at New South Wales, most of the electorates in Victoria that voted yes in the voice, voted yes in the, in the Republic referendum. If you go to Queensland, two voted yes in the Republic, three voted yes in the voice, the third one is an electorate which literally adjoins the other two. Nothing has changed. Mm. I wrote an essay um, that, that the first one I wrote about, and in that essay I said that the referendum vote in Australia was actually a precursor of what's happened around the rest of the globe. When you look at the Republic referendum, the rise of somebody like Donald Trump was totally foreseeable. Yeah. Brexit was to- the Brexit result was totally foreseeable. Yes. The fact that Marine Le Pen would not go away anytime soon was totally foreseeable. Mm. Uh, because the, the division is not political at all. It's cultural. And that's why you can put a cigarette paper between the policies of, of the major parties. Yes. They are responding to culture. Yep. And, and that's, that's the pattern. Extraordinary, isn't it? Do you, do you see that there's a, about a minute to go, do you see that there's an opportunity perhaps for a third party um, in Australia to represent the people uh, away from the culture and for the uh, economics? Uh, um, I'm sorry, Jason, takes more than a minute. Um, I, I, 30 years ago, I thought that. Mm. I do mean 30 years ago. Uh, for 30 years, I've taken an interest in minor parties and independents as a mechanism to try to bring the major parties to heel, mm. and I have failed. Uh, the, um, and there, there are reasons for the failure. The, um, the, the theoretical answer to your question is yes. But, but you see, it things have got worse over the last 30 years. You take Queensland and Victoria, the taxpayer funds totally the political parties. I mean, they mm. don't just fund the elections, they actually fund the administration. Yes, it did. And, and therein lies the problem again. Yeah, Rick, we uh, unfortunately run out of time. It's been a lovely time to chat, Jason. 
Well, thank you. And, uh, and certainly a conversation that should continue in the future. So much to talk about. I just want to thank you again. That was Rick Brown from cpistrategic.com.au. A wonderful conversation to be able to get a perspective from both sides of the fence and be able to put it all together. We're going to take a break for news headlines and a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist up next. Goodness me, the Manchurian journalist of all things. We're going to talk about all of that after the break here on Weekends with Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio. 